Okay. How about we read our scripture together? Let's stand. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. John 1, 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through Him all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, his name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, we've spent, I think this is the sixth, fifth or sixth week in John's prologue. And it's it's been really rich. I hope you've seen that in this prologue to the Gospel of John, it contains all of the major themes that we're going to find throughout the gospel. John covers everything, really, that somebody needs to know about Jesus for life and salvation. He covers it in these first 18 verses. It's beautiful. It's poetic. Uh, I hope you've gotten used to the sound of it as we've read it over and over and over again. So we've taken these five or six weeks. Somebody better at mass than me might know. Uh, and we've looked at the major themes in this prologue, which will end up being the major themes throughout John's Gospel. We looked at the theme that Jesus is the Word. What does it mean that Jesus is the message from God? We've considered what does it mean that Jesus is uh, 
divine, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. What does it mean that he is fully God? That he is, like it says uh, in verse 18, he's the one and only son who is himself God and is also in close relationship with the Father. We call that eternal generation. Remember that? We looked at that. We talked about incarnation. What does it mean that he became flesh? What does it mean that the Word became incarnate and that Jesus is a human being, even today? Why is that so important? We considered that. We said all these things. The last theme, the last major theme that John hits in this prologue, I want to cover today, and then next week we'll start, we'll move forward in the Gospel. And this last major theme is the theme of mission. Or, when I was growing up, we called it missions, plural. Uh, a theme of mission, or missions. Missionary stuff. Uh, the thing that Christians are called to do. This is, uh, in case you haven't heard before, or maybe you have, uh, but a lot of folks... Uh, don't know unless you've gone to like a formal study on the book of John or read a book about the book of John. And John 1, 1 through 18 is what they would call a missiological text. Missiology, like theology, is what you think about God, what we study about God, what we believe about God. Christology, what we think about Christ Jesus, what we uh, study about him, what we believe about him. Well, missiology is what we think about mission, Christian mission, or missions. What we study about missions. What we hold to be true about missions. And this text is a missiological text. In fact, it's one of the major missiological texts in the New Testament. So, what does John's prologue have to say that we need to know about mission? That's the question for today. Some of you know my story. I myself uh, my, grew up in a pastor-missionary family. Uh, you guys, I've talked about my dad is a pastor, my brother's a pastor, my dad's grandfather was a pastor. Uh, I, I am what some people would call a legacy pastor. It's a generational thing. Uh, but I don't talk about as much as I also come from a missionary family. In fact, when I was born, my parents were serving as missionaries in the Dominican Republic. They weren't doing regular parish local church ministry. They were doing missionary stuff in the Dominican Republic. And they loved it. Um, and they would have stayed, and they would have done that forever. But when I was a year old in 1984, my family was, experienced a traumatic car accident and that brought us back to the United States. And it was in that recovery process that they made the decision, along with their missions agency, uh, to stay in the United States and just go back to regular local church parish ministry. However, since that time, when they made that transition, my parents, especially my dad, never dropped the missionary fervor. Every single uh, church that we were in, probably every single sermon had a call to Christian mission. Each Christian was called to live on mission for Jesus. 
Each Christian was to consider going somewhere in the world, locally or across oceans or somewhere, and live as a missionary. Even if you were an accountant, you were a missionary in that accounting office. There was such a heavy emphasis on missions and missionary life. This was what I came up in. Further, I grew up a Southern Baptist, which is a denomination that very much carries a culture of missionary emphasis. Maybe you, some of you, might be familiar with this uh, heavy missionary emphasis sort of Christianity. Maybe some of you uh, had, maybe some of you grew up Southern Baptist and had a taste of that, or you spent some time with YWAM, or you uh, read a John Piper book or, or something, and you're familiar with the idea with the Christian culture, the little corner of evangelicalism, which really emphasizes that there's no such thing as being a Christian who's not also a missionary. And that was me. That's what I came up with. If you read the weekly email devotional, then you read the one this week, and I shared a little bit about how at times in my life, that background has been hard for me. Uh, I shared a little bit about how the heavy mission emphasis, heavy missionary emphasis, and the kind of Christianity I grew up in uh, has been difficult. Um, let's take a second. Let me just define Christian mission. We did, a, we did a sermon series on this last year, but I don't expect everyone to remember everything from every sermon. I don't remember, I don't remember what last week's sermon was. So, uh, what is Christian mission? Let's just define it real quick. Basically, Christian mission, what it means to be a Christian missionary or a Christian on mission or a Christian who embraces mission is somebody who embraces what, what we could call uh, basically what is referred to in the New Testament as the Great Commission. The Great Commission was uh, is a general term for a set of sayings, a set of teachings that Jesus gave to his disciples near the end of his Galilean Judean ministry, which sort of defined their path forward after his ascension. And there are four major Great Commission texts. One, we spent a lot of time with last year, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. Go you therefore into uh, go you therefore and make disciples of all nations, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you, and know that I am with you always to the end of the age. That's sort of the big one. Uh, another one is uh, comes from the longer ending of the Gospel of Mark. It's more succinct. Jesus says, go into all the world and preach the Gospel to all of creation. Another one comes from Acts. This is where Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses to Judea and Samaria, to, to Jerusalem, to Judea and Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. And then the last one, which is maybe my favorite, comes from the Gospel of John, and that's where Jesus says, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. He break on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. 
and he said, if you forgive anyone's sins, they're forgiven. If you don't forgive their sins, they're not forgiven. He gives them agency. So those texts, you put them together, and they all contain, uh, they're all things that Jesus said to his disciples, and they all contain at least two things. They have two major aspects to mission that they all have in common. One is this charge to, for the disciples, for Christians, for the church, to go and engage people. To make active engagement. Go into all the world and make disciples. Um, go to Jerusalem, to, to Judea, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. You are being sent. Uh, go to all of creation. This idea of going and engaging. That's the first aspect of Christian mission. The second aspect of Christian mission is to bear witness or to proclaim. Bear witness about who Jesus is, proclaim who Jesus is, teach people who Jesus is. So Matthew says, you're going to baptize people, you're going to teach people. Uh, Luke, in the book of Acts, says, um, you will be my witnesses. Mark says, preach the gospel. And John gives this very specific thing Jesus says about forgiving people in Jesus' name. So, Christian mission. Uh, there's, a, there's a going piece, engaging persons, and then once we engage persons, we're bearing witness, we're telling them about Jesus, we're proclaiming Christ. Okay, that's Christian mission. Okay, hold that in your head. Now back to the story. I grew up in, in, in Christian mission, heavy emphasis land, and, and maybe you did too, or you're familiar with it, and that thing, that emphasis that every single Christ follower is also an agent of Christ. Every Christ follower needs to go somewhere, and every Christ follower needs to bear witness in word, telling people about Jesus, opening your mouth, and actually, let me tell you about Christ, and indeed, doing things, serving people. This would be good works. This would be acts of service. Uh, this would be living humbly before the world. Every single Christian, you, 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 and you, this is what we do. And in fact, I even had someone tell me one time, this is what it means to be a Christian. This is it. Doing these things. Now, as I shared in the email, times in my life I've struggled with this. And I wonder if you have too. I found myself asking, can't I just be a Jesus follower without necessarily taking on the being a representative of Jesus? Can't I just be a Christian? Do I have to be a Christian missionary? Can't I just like and subscribe? Do I have to like and subscribe and repost? Do you hear me? Can, can I just be... And here's the reason. Here's why I have struggled with this throughout my life. And maybe you have too. There's basically three reasons why I have found this hard. First is because of the magnitude of the need. We live in a world with, what, like 8 billion people? Something like... I remember when I was a kid, it was like 6 billion. Now it's 8 billion. An ever billions growing, billions and billions of people world. How many of these people don't know Jesus, have never heard the name of Jesus, don't care to know about Jesus at all? How many are there? 
I've heard so many sermons and sat in conferences and conversations. People say, we're going to finish the task. We're going to fulfill the Great Commission. Every single people group is going to... I'm saying, how, how much work, how hard is this going to be? And, and I personally feel overwhelmed by the hugeness of the need. And that's just the proclamation piece. The word, that's just the word piece. The word and deed, the need piece. I, I look at our city... Serving people in Jesus' name. Let's just take one issue that, that needs to be addressed with Christian service. Let's, let's take houselessness, homelessness. I'm looking our city. What can sure we can partner with Community of Hope? I can keep some dollar bills in the car to pass out to people when they're asking. As Jesus said, "Turn on now. You have to everyone who asks from you." But is that going to make a huge difference? It seems like the need is growing faster than the missionary effort. And, and I get overwhelmed and discouraged. So that's one reason that at times in my life, I just wanted to be a regular Christian, not a Christian on mission. That's the nature of the need. Here, here's another reason. Because of opposition. I don't know if you know this, but not every single person out there wants to be a Christian. And I don't know if you know this, but not... There's a lot of people out there that don't want you coming up to them and trying to talk to them about Jesus. In fact, it's very awkward in our culture. Have you ever stood outside of a Blazers or a Timbers game or walked across the University of Portland campus? Or maybe you've seen videos or, or something of, of, uh, from outside of an abortion clinic of people, Christians, preaching on the street holding signs and screaming at people. I remember one time walking across the campus at University of Portland and there was a guy standing on a bucket, standing there with a megaphone, screaming at people, this street preacher. And I remember just how small I felt and how angry that this was supposed to be one of us. So I sat down and I listened to his words. I didn't like his tone. Everyone around me was ticked because of what this guy was doing. But I sat down and I listened to his words and something shocked me. I hated the way he was engaging people. But what he actually said, I believed every word of it. He was saying, everyone here is loved by God, created in his image. But everyone here has turned away from God and has sinned. So everyone here needs to repent and believe and turn to Jesus for your salvation. Jesus is God's Savior for you. Turn to Jesus. I believe every word of that. But I was embarrassed because he was up there screaming at folks. Now, when I talk about Jesus with my friends, do they see me like, like, like one of those people? There's opposition. This, this doesn't even include what happens in other places in the world where Christians are actively persecuted. By the way, in case you don't know, here, generally speaking, Christianity might be frowned upon in some areas, but we are not actively being persecuted. But there are other places where we couldn't do this without, you know, maybe somebody with you know, an army or something, breaking break in the door, taking us all to jail. There's a lot of opposition. And I found myself thinking, maybe I just want to be a Jesus follower. Maybe, can I just show up and be one of the, maybe I don't want to be a, feel that? You felt that? 
Here's the third reason I wanted to just be a Jesus. I just want to be a fan. I don't want to be a player. The third reason is what I call mission shame. And this is a huge one. I, just to be clear, no one in my family intended this or did this on purpose. But my entire adult life, I have carried shame. It comes from the way I grew up. That I can never, ever do enough for Jesus. I can never share with enough people. I can never preach a good enough sermon. Our church cannot grow fast. In fact, we have a small church. How many people aren't coming to our church and hearing the gospel? What am I doing wrong? Do I need to go? Do I need to be a better greeter at the door? Do I need to preach better sermons? Do I need to study more apologetics? Something is wrong with me. When's the last, Charlie, when's the last time you led somebody to Christ? When's the last time I looked at somebody and they said, what must I do to be saved? And we prayed a prayer and they came to Christ. That was years ago. And before that, years. I carry shame. I hear people talking about church planting movements, launching churches, growing, and you know all these things that are happening. And I, oh, something's wrong with me. You felt that? So I, I, I know you guys aren't talking back to me, but I am willing to bet that I am not the only person in here who has struggled and who has wished so hard that I could just be a Christian and not embrace this mission thing. Alright, that's enough of that. What is John in his prologue telling us about Christian mission? What is his missiological statement? Well, it has to do with these verses about John the Baptist. Verses 6 through 8 and then verse 15. Okay? Now, I don't know if you've noticed this over the last six weeks when we've read this passage over and over and over again, but John's prologue is very smooth and poetic. It's brilliant literature. It's, it's so smooth and so poetic. But these verses about John the Baptist, 6 through 8 and 15, they don't fit, just speaking of like just the literary quality, they don't fit in the flow. They interrupt the flow of the passage. Have you noticed that? He starts in a story about John the Baptist in verse 19. Why did he save these verses for them? And, and if you look at verses, the prologue, John 1, 1 through 18, and you remove verses 14, uh, Verses John 6 through 8 and verse 15. If you remove those, if you cut them out, what happens is the prologue then flows perfectly. It, it could win a poetry contest in like a, like a medium-sized high school. It flows perfectly. Check it out. Verses 6 through 8. Uh, well, verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Skip to verse Nine. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Perfect. 
So we have this interruption. There was a man sent from God, his name was John, and he was a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light, he only came as a witness to the light. It's like John, the gospel writer, it's like he wrote it and he goes, no way, and he went and, cut and pasted that part in afterwards. He, I have to put that in there. Same with verse 15. If before verse 14 he says, we have seen the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Skip to verse 16. Out of his fullness we have always seen grace, and place of grace already given. Perfect flow. But he interrupts it, he breaks it with parentheses. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. You see it? Now, why did John the Gospel writer insert these verses about John the Baptist? The answer has to do with mission. Let me show you. Consider what John the Gospel writer is saying about John the Baptist in these verses. What is he saying? Well, verse 6, he was a man sent from God, his name was John. So he's saying John the Baptist is human, he's a man, he's a human being, he's not a force or an angel or a superman, he, he, he is a dude. Uh, he's sent from God, so that's interesting, that kind of mirrors the fact that he was just talking about uh, the word flesh, Jesus being sent from God. So, anyway, John the Baptist is human. He's sent from God. Um, he came to witness, to testify, okay, about what? About that light. He came to testify about Jesus. So he's a human being. He is sent or commissioned. Uh, he has come here uh, because God sent him. And he is here to do what? To bear witness uh, to what? Bear witness to Jesus, talk about Jesus. Why? So that people would hear and believe. Okay, that's 6 through 8. And then what about verses 14 and 15, verses 15? Well, verse 15 tells us that this John is a believer. He believes in Jesus. He says, he points to Jesus, that's the guy. That's the guy that I was talking about when I said the one who comes after me is greater because he's before me. So we put all this together. What does John the Gospel writer interrupt his blue ribbon poem to tell us about John the Baptist? Well, he wants us to know that John the Baptist is a human being who believes in Jesus, who has been, therefore, sent by God to open his mouth and bear witness to others about who Jesus is so these other people would hear and they would believe in Jesus. Does this sound like something you've heard about before? John the Gospel writer is telling us that John the Baptist is a Christian living on mission. And he takes these verses about John the Baptist this prototype Christian living on mission, and he pushes them in. He inserts them right in the middle of this beautiful prologue about Jesus, the Son of God, who was sent on mission to the world to, as the Word of God, 
proclaim to us who God is so that we would hear and we would see the light and that we would become sons and daughters of God also. Do you see what John's doing? Here's this beautiful thing that he wrote about Jesus, God's messenger, God's word for us. How he came into the world so that we could see and we could hear and we believe. And then he interrupts it with this parallel story of a human being who believes in this Jesus, who was also sent as a messenger to speak a word so people would hear, see, and believe. And he smashes these two things together into one passage. Now why does he do that? Here's John's point. John wants us to know that missiology, what we believe, what we study, what we do, what we hold to be true about mission, doesn't stand on its own. It derives, it is derivative from Christology. Let me say that a different way. Being a Christian on mission is not something that just exists in a platonic void. It derives from the truth that Jesus himself is a person on mission. What John is saying to us is that there is no such thing as someone who can put faith in Christ and not be like Christ. Just like Christ himself is the son, and the people who believe become sons and daughters, to believe in him is to be like him, in the same way Christ is the word, so to believe in him is to be a proclaimer of the word. Christ is sent, therefore to believe in him is to be like him, it's to go. John is telling us, that Jesus' identity informs our actions, just like Jesus' actions as our Savior inform our identity. John wants us to know from the very beginning of his story about Jesus that if we go on to believe any of this, the thing that will happen to us is that we will become like Jesus in every way except for the fact that he himself is divine. We'll stay non-divine, regular humans. But we will be united with him. Which means there is no Christ follower who isn't a Christ representative. There is no I like and subscribe without like, subscribe, and repost. And this goes back to our earlier question. Can there be a Christianity without missional emphasis? John says, no. Can I be a Christ follower without embracing Christian mission? John says, no. Can I believe without speaking it out? John says, no. Now, for those of you who, like me, carry mission shame, have been burdened and hurt a mission opposition and who feel overwhelmed by the missional need. Does this sound like good news? Does 
God says, hey guys, you must do this thing if you want to follow me. We say, oh Lord, it's too much. He said, I don't care. You got to do it. Does that sound like good news? You know, I think this is one reason why so many Christians leave Orthodox Christianity for cheap imitations. Two big ones. That Orthodox Christians leave Christianity for one would be called what we could call syncretistic Christianity. Syncretism. We leave Orthodox Christianity because the, the missional burden is too heavy. We're crushed by the law of God saying, you follow me, you're my missionary. So we excuse ourselves and we embrace a kind of Christianity that's just just is really no different than the non-Christian cultures around us. It's, a, it's an imitation of Christianity that says, you know, Jesus doesn't really have anything to offer the world that the world doesn't already have or can't already find somewhere else. It's a Christianity that says, what right do I have to tell somebody they are loved by God, but they have rejected God, so they need to turn to Christ. They've already turned to other things. They're following this other religion. You know, they're doing their best. And you know, that's really not any different. It's this idea that every world religion is basically the same, and what God wants, whatever that means, is just people who just are sincere, and when we leave orthodoxy and embrace that, that relieves the burden. Oh, we don't really have to tell anybody about Jesus. I don't think many of us struggle with the temptation to go and embrace syncretism. But we probably know folks. It's all over town. It's all over everywhere. There's another kind of cheap imitation Christianity that I think we struggle with. It's not syncretism. It's separatism. This is the kind of cheap imitation Christianity which says this. The burden to believe in Christ and represent him, the, the, the God's law, but to hold to him is to be a missionary. It's too hard. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go over here and I'm going to sever my tie with the non-believing world. So I don't actually have to engage with any non-Christians. And by the way, so you know, we have exited Christianity at this point. This is an imitation. What I'm going to do is I'm going to make sure, I'm, I'm, I'm going to distance myself from all non-Christians that I know. I'm going to make sure that my Facebook wall or whatever is all things I agree with. Um, I, I'm going to pull my kids out from whatever they do that engages them with unbelieving people. And, and our, our church also, we're going to create our own little world that's safe. And yes, we will proclaim Christ, but only within our community and only within our families. We're going to proclaim Christ where there is a, a, a need that we can handle. 
I can handle my own kids, so I'll just proclaim Christ in my home, and that's it. We're going to proclaim Christ where we can stand up against the opposition. Nobody's really challenging me in here. We're going to proclaim Christ where, you know, everybody feels the same shame, so we're together in this. Separatism. We're going to close our eyes and ears to the people out there, to the people in our families, in our friend groups, in our workplaces who are lost without Jesus. We're going to cut them off. Their fault. If they want Jesus, they can find him. We're going to make sure everybody knows our little positions on every single issue so we can stay holy and separate. We're going to get so involved in our church that we forget about what's going on in the world. We're going to get lost in our little denominational squibbles and politics and statements. We're going to live in this silo. And we're going to come here every single week and know that, you know what, at least we're doing it right. At least there's a good, nice little reformed church in southeast Portland that's faithful. Forget everything else. I think some of us struggle with this. We have exited Christianity. So, what do we do? Here we have this unbearable truth. That to follow Christ is to be his representative. Amongst opposition, amongst immeasurable need, even though we feel shame, the weight of the law is crushing. So what do we do? How do we go forward? Hope Prez, how do we go forward? Well, let me preach the gospel to you. Gospel of John's prologue. It's this. Look at verse 5. Right before the interruption about John Baptist, it says this The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Let me read it again. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The light, it continues to shine in the darkness, and the darkness has not, not yet, overcome it. Do you know what John is talking about here? Obviously the light is Jesus. Remember how I told you that his prologue contains every major part of the rest of his gospel, all right here? You know what this verse is about? It's about the cross. This is about the death of Christ. His death, burial, and descent into hell. Under the weight of the law, his light shines in the darkest places, in the darkness of the overwhelming nature of the need. His light shines in the darkness of the greatest opposition. And his light shines in the darkness of your shame. And that darkness has not overcome his light. 
That's the gospel. Though the law crushes us, we cling to Jesus because in him we cannot be crushed. And there's more. Remember that whole piece about how John is a man who is sent to proclaim so people might believe and that mirrors the whole theme about how Jesus is, uh, became a human being. He was sent here so he would proclaim he's the word of God so that people would hear and believe and then they would become sons and daughters. You see how these things mirror each other? What John is telling us here is that to do Christian mission is not to do something for Jesus. To do Christian mission is to do something with Jesus. So let me put it like this. There is no such thing as a Christian who does not embrace mission. Why? Because being on mission is what it means to be a Christian. Why? It's because God is cruel and he can't do his own work. No. Because as God has done his own work, he says to you and to me and to all of us, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, have union with me, be with me, follow me, come and see, we do it together. So whoever told you that you're not doing enough, or that you need to do something for God or else, forget that. He says to go, he says you're sent, he says to preach, he says to serve, he says to baptize, he says to teach, not because he can't do it himself, but because he is doing it himself. And he says to you, while I do this, let me do it with my arms around you. So let me say it like this. The need. It's not on you. It's on him. The opposition. He's already been crushed under the opposition and he rose from the dead. And the shame. He purchased your shame on the cross. Let him carry it. It's his. So here's the invitation, folks. To look at our little church. Look at the big bad city as we look at our lives, as we look at what's ahead for each of us. Consider this. Do you want more Jesus in your life? Do you want to be close to him? Do you want to rest in him? He says, come join me in my work. That's what Christian mission is all about, and that's what we're doing here. Thank God. Praise Jesus. What a relief and what a joy. Let's pray.